0: You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIW Hello, welcome to Investor Way with me, Sam Ball. It's the 30th of October, 2023, and I'm joined by my co-host, John McEwen. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing Barclays, Unilever, Lloyd's, wreck ben kaiser NatWest, and our US Company of the Week is Coca-Cola. John, should I start off our banking bonanza with Barclays? <laughs> yes, go ahead, Sam. So, Barclays have come out with their Q3 results, and they've reported third quarter income of £6.3 billion, which is down 2%, excluding the impact of last year's performance from the over-issuance of securities. Performance was mixed across divisions, with growth from higher rates in the UK and rising US credit card balances more than offset by lower investment banking activity, consumers shopping for better deposit rates and ongoing mortgage headwinds. Profit before tax of one point nine billion and a return on tangible equity of eleven percent were ahead of expectations, helped by losses for potential bad loans that were better than forecast. Capital levels remain at the top end of the target range and the £750 million buyback announced at the half-year results was completed in the quarter. The shares fell 6.7% on the results. So the net interest margin, which is the profitability of the borrowing and lending operations guidance, has been cut again. And the dip in UK deposits was worse than expected, which was one of the main reasons that the net interest margin has come down. The reason is that consumers are shifting to less profitable fixed term accounts or shopping around banks in search of better cash returns, a trend that's expected to continue. The mortgage market's also been a headwind for most banks, although it does look like trends are starting to improve. It's worth noting that Barclays is better diversified than most UK banks, as it's got still got the investment banking arm, which most of the other ones I think were forced to get rid of in two thousand and eight. And it's got sizable credit card business as well which a lot of the others don't have. Arrears for UK cards are low although there's been an uptick in the US but levels remain in line with pre-pandemic. In terms of the investment bank fees continue to come under pressure as activity in the market remains subdued and tough comparable periods mean that growth's unlikely in the current year. In terms of valuation the business trades at a forward price to book of 0.35 and that compares to a 10-year average of 0.54. In terms of the price to earnings, it looks like it's at a P of four point one nine and the prospective yield is six point eight percent, and that compares to a 10-year average of four point one percent. So it is incredibly cheap. I-, I don't really like the industry. I find it very complicated. We've I've not gone into it and I'm not gonna go into it in any of the three banks that I'll be covering, but there's all kinds of ratios and stuff that you need to look out for you need to look at the sort of like the capital requirements and stuff like that that i i just find too complicated and then on top of that i do think there is probably a bit more of a trend where people are switching towards other accounts so it's it's never been easier really to switch i think it's a bit similar to the issue that Hargreaves lansdowne have got where it's if, if anything it's easier i think for example I, i've my first bank account was with NatWest when I was 18. I've stayed with NatWest ever since. And then in the last year, I've opened a Chase account, which I'm now using for my everyday spending. So I still get paid into NatWest, but the money just immediately goes out into Chase just because I get, I get better cash back and stuff on that. So yeah, I, I don't think it's a great environment for them at the minute. John, what are your thoughts on the results and the industry generally?
1: I would say similar, I suppose the results probably aren't that surprising in the current conditions, particularly with Barclays being one of the three that has retained its investment bank. And that being, well, very low, we're not seeing many IPOs happening now. Difficult industry to understand, and it wouldn't be one that I'd be looking to put
0: new money in. Right. Shall we move on to Unilever then? But we will be back to the banks very short. <laughs> yes, exactly. So Unilever is,
1: the well, we've covered it lots of times on the show. It's the owner of Ben & Jerry's, Dove Soap, many other household names. They had their third quarter trading update out last week with reported third quarter sales of 15.2 billion euros, reflecting underlying sales growth of 5.2%, which was in line with expectations. Price hikes of 5.8%, more than offset, a 0.6% drop in the volumes. Unilever's largest brands drove performance, led by Dove, Hellman's, Rexona and Sunsilk. Ice Cream was the only division to see a drop in underlying sales growth as consumers traded down from the premium offerings and Europe saw unfavourable weather. The new chief executive provided further information on plans to drive growth forward and the set to be an increased focus on the 30 of the largest brands with an overarching goal of improving gross margins at the group level. The announced quarterly dividend, which was 42 cents a share, which is broad, or no, in fact, it's just uh, maintaining and the shares were down a couple of percent in early trading. In terms of the valuation, Unilever has a market cap of £96 billion pounds and trades 16.7 times forward earnings compared with a 10-year average of 19.3 and it has a 4% dividend yield. I thought these results were fairly lacklustre and the sales growth of 5.2% with a, drop, a small drop in the volumes slightly disappointing and they weren't as good uh, as Nestle that we covered last week that being said it still does have some world class brands and it was interesting with the chief ex- the new chief executive providing some further information about how he was going to increase performance to talk about trimming the portfolio and then yeah focusing on those largest brands which were represent about 70% of overall group sales and trying to get the gross margins going back in the right direction they have streamlined the internal structure and some of their sales operation and they're expecting to deliver 600 million euros of cost saving and that's weighted towards the second half i don't think we're expecting it to be a particularly quick process i guess the shares not even by sort of historical terms, not particularly expensive so i think it's but that's probably reflected in the price I do still really like Unilever. So I think it's a case of waiting and seeing. If I didn't already own shares, I probably w- would be quite interested, given that it's hi- historical discount. But you are betting on what this new chief executive can do with some of those really strong brands that have potentially been underinvested invested in the last few years. Yeah, and that's, that's probably all I
0: have to say on Unilever at the moment. I don't have a huge amount to add. It's been cheap for a few years, really, compared to... I think it's partly because it's listed in the UK, but as well, if you, if you look at other peers, I mean, we've looked at similar ones in the US, like McCormick and stuff, and I think Unilever's probably got better brands. They are a lot more expensive. If you go to Europe, Nestle is a lot more expensive. Then you look at the numbers that they've been putting out, they are just not as good. I mean, these for example, sales growth of 5.2%. We were complaining... The other day because nestle <laughs> was only eight eight percent yeah you know it's, it's like that every time it's it's usually sort of a couple two or three percentage points higher and that's why people pay up for nestle i think unilever's brands are pretty close to nestle although i do think nestle slightly slightly better but in terms of if you go back sort of two three four five years and you look at the execution and how management have handled them now admittedly it's a different set of managers to the ones that are in place now these these guys are quite new But I think management have done a really poor job with some of the brands they've had in the last few years, and it it has just been very lackluster. And I think as an investor, you buy it, you're getting a decent dividend, you're getting sort of low to mid single digits growth, and you're not really getting anything else. And I think with the brands they've got, they possibly could be doing or could have been doing a lot more. So I think with a new CEO, it's just still too soon to tell. But for the brands they've got, I think... 17 times earnings is pretty reasonable, especially when you compare it to the alternatives like Nestle, like McCormick.
1: No, I would agree. Okay, on to our next bank then, Sam.
0: Yep, so we've got Lloyds up next, and Lloyds have come out with a Q3 interim management statement. Lloyds have reported a 1% rise in net income over the third quarter to £4.5 There was a small increase in net interest income and a larger gain from the smaller other income, which was from fees. Net interest margin fell quarter-on-quarter to 3.08%, and that's lower than was expected, but management remained confident enough to reiterate full-year guidance with it over 3.1%. Deposits increased 500 million quarter-on-quarter as a dip in retail current account, was more than offset by an increase in longer term retail savings. Arrears were broadly stable, remaining at or below pre pandemic levels, and an impairment charge of 187 million was taken over the quarter in expectations for future defaults. Underlying profit rose 22% to 2 billion. Lloyd's is more focused on traditional banking than Barclays, which has investment banking arm that we mentioned. And this means it is more exposed to the interest rate cycles than banks such as Barclays, with 73% of Lloyd's total income being interest related. Mortgages issued over the pandemic are starting to come up to renewal at less profitable levels. This was hinted at with Barclays. We'll see it again with NatWest on the next one. There's also increased pressure on banks to offer more in the way of interest on deposits and depositors are shifting from higher margin current accounts to less profitable, longer term savings accounts that offer better rates. Again, similar problem to what Barclays has been seeing. Lloyds has done well to attract business into its saving products and that has offset a dip in current account balances. However, they make less money on the savings products than they do on the current accounts. Those are higher margin accounts, the current accounts. Lloyds has set aside an additional £800 in preparation for defaults this year, and that's a lower figure than 2022. And they said there are plans to build out the non-interest income, and they're looking at areas like asset management, general insurance, and pensions. In terms of the valuation, the business trades at a forward price-to-book of 0.61, and that compares to a 10-year average of 0.92. And the price-to-earnings is 5.45, the prospective yield, over the next twelve months is seven and a half percent, and that compares to a ten-year average of five point four percent. Again, it's it's pretty similar to Barclays, but I, I think it's arguably worse with Lloyd's and also with NatWest that we'll cover later because it doesn't have that investment banking arm. And when seventy, what was it, seventy three percent of the revenue is interest related, it's possible interest rates have peaked, and then on top of that, we're at or near the peak, and they are losing market share to these competitors like chase and stuff that are coming in or like monzo or whoever else so i think these are businesses where when when times aren't very good they're really not good and then when times are better they're not really i i question their ability to hold on to you know some of these higher margin accounts longer term in higher interest rate environments and then on top of that you've got all the the mortgages that are coming up for renewal that they're going to be making less money on as they come up for renewal so i just think it's not anything particular to Lloyd's. It just looks like an industry-wide problem. And I think when we cover Nat West later, that will reinforce that. But it's not a business I'd be particularly keen to get into. I think I'd maybe consider one of the challenger banks, or like Monzo or something like that, just because there's a bit more growth. And they're actually you know, taking market share rather than trying to cling on to it. But yeah, I, I just don't really like the industry. And it, it doesn't seem like a particularly great business to be in at the minute. And then on top of that, you know, you've got businesses like Hargreaves Lansdowne where they're getting into like cash ices and stuff. I think if they can get into other business models, that's that does help. But I don't know. I mean, there's some stuff where I think with insurance where they've got a lot of information about you, they can probably do quite well with that. But then other stuff like pensions, would you want? I don't know. I don't know how easy that is to get into, and how easy of a market it is to crack. I think the good thing is they've got so many accounts that they can just offer it to. But I think there's there's some areas where it lends itself a lot better. I think if you see a little pop up on your Lloyd's in your current or savings account, it's like, would you, you know, would you like home insurance? They already know you've got a mortgage. It's it's quite easy to organise in the app. I can see people doing it. It was like, oh, do you want us to manage your pension? Do you want us to manage your your ISA? It's a bit more mm-hmm. of a jump. So yeah. I'm not I'm just not sure about it. John what are your thoughts on Lloyds and the comparison to the Barclays results? I think I would
1: yeah largely echo what you said and it's also not that either of them are expensive. Lloyds is a little bit more expensive than Barclays.
0: Yeah, it is. It's a bit odd, really considering it's I don't know I think I think it's a business that has probably got less going for it. At least Barclays is a bit more diversified. But they're all so cheap, really. It's kind of... It, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, you it, are splitting I, don't, her. I suppose cyclical sector, as as you say, too. Yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah, it's, it is very cyclical. So although these PEs are very low, the reason is, is because profits are probably just going to fall off a cliff once we get to a lower interest rate environment. So, yeah. yeah. To yeah. we move back from banks to consumer <laughs>
1: gods? <laughs> Again, yes. So Rekit Bankiser, uh, which is the owner of Lysol, Sinit Bang, Finish, Jurex Condoms, lots and lots of brands. M- more towards the hygiene end compared with Unilever. Anyway, they had a th- their third quarter trading statement out with the group reporting third quarter net revenue of £3.6 billion, reflecting like for like sales growth of 3.4%. Higher prices were able to more than offset a 4.1% dip in volumes, a larger decline than the group had been expecting. Like-for-like sales growth was driven by hygiene and health, with over-the-counter medicines, Finnish and Lysol ranges the standout performers. Volumes in nutrition were the main detractor as performance lapped in a very tough comparable periods due to the inflated sales of last year when some of their competitors in the States faced supply issues. Management announced a £1 billion share buyback, which will be completed over the course of the next 12 months, and reiterated full-year guidance of between 3% and 5% like-for-like net revenue growth and similarly to Unilever the shares were down a couple of percent in early trading. In terms of valuation Rekit has a market cap of 42 billion pounds and trades at around 16 and a half times forward earnings compared with a 10-year average of 20 and it has a prospective dividend yield of three and a half percent. Again I thought these results were disappointing and more disappointing than Unilever which in turn was more disappointing than Nestle. It's difficult, I think, for Racket with some normalization in the hygiene products post-COVID, although they still are above pre-pandemic levels. And the same for the infant nutrition business, which really helped last year with the supply issues that some of the competitors faced. On the positives, I still think it does have some strong brands, Yes, they're not as strong as Unilever or Nestle, but there are some decent ones in there. They had taken on quite a lot of debt a few years ago uh, in in terms of the formula business. That's coming down now, and net debt is now around two times cash profits. I wouldn't be looking to buy shares in It, And in fact, I did used to hold the company and probably sold it within the last two months. And I I don't feel any regret towards that. I think Unilever has a lot more potential. And again, when it comes to the valuation, isn't much more expensive. So, I mean, when I say it's not much more expensive, we're talking about 0.2 difference in terms of its forward uh, price to earnings. So it really isn't much more expensive. And I think it's a lot better business, greater potential ahead of it. And it's exciting. Well, you could say it's exciting with some of the activist investors and its new chief executive so we'll wait and see but yeah record record's not not
0: not high up on my list at the moment i think these are really poor results i thought the unilever results (laughs) (laughs) these are worse really really poor it does put the nestle results into perspective because i made a comment that Nestle had only done like eight percent, and Tesco had done ten. And I did, you know, I, n- I know they're not directly comparable, but I mean, Nestle, I guess it does show why people pay up for Nestle compared to Wreck-It and Unilever because mm. it is consistently delivering better results. And I, th- I think as well, it does. I know it's slightly different because it's a retailer, but the Tesco results really, really good. Normally, these guys are all quite in line, but there's a bit of a gap this time. But yeah, these are just really poor. We usually make a similar comment every time we cover it, but I don't really understand who's buying It when you can get better brands with Unilever at basically the same PE. I just really don't know who would look at the two. I guess maybe if you're taking a basket approach, but then Unilever's got so many solid brands, you could argue it's diversified enough. But yeah, I think for the numbers it's putting up compared to the others, I would expect it to be cheaper. And as well with Unilever, although the share price is pretty similar, Unilever is giving you a much better dividend yield. Yeah. So I do question with Reckitt if more money is going out into the business rather than being paid out as a dividend, Like, where is it actually going? Because it's not creating growth. So what is that money actually doing? I, I really don't get it. I wouldn't ever find out either because I would have enough information that if I was looking at a consumer goods company, I would probably go with Unilever. But I, I think with Reckitt and Unilever, given the valuations... For me, Unilever is more of a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. Whereas then if you go, oh, well, what about Unilever or Nestle? At least with Nestle, although it's putting up the better figures, you do have to pay up for it. So at least there's still a decision to be made. Whereas when it's the same price for s- such different growth rates, I just don't know why you'd pick Wreck It.
1: Yeah, no, no, I, I would completely agree. I completely agree. I think perhaps when it did do the big formula acquisition, it must be over five years ago now, Part of that was on the back of the rising population in China and you know, emerging markets growth trend. It obviously didn't work out. In fact, it worked very badly, out very badly for the business. Perhaps that was an investment case back then.
0: Mm.
1: And then, has there been a turnaround since? Well, somewhat, but when you
0: look at these sorts of results, not really.
1: Yeah, so I
0: just, I just don't get it. It's yeah. always been like that. It's always been about the same price as Unilever and the results have never been as good, really.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it, that being said, it did do well over COVID with Lysol sales, et cetera. But it did, yeah. De- yeah. It's uh, not held on to it. it well, <laughs> no, I know. And and you've seen that in the share price too. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Well, well, we were talking mean,
0: at one point as if, you know, the pandemic was going to make everyone wash their hands more going forward. Clearly the record results show that that hasn't happened. I.
1: Yeah, I mean it. So the hygiene products—it's still above pre-pandemic levels. But oh, that's good. So we are washing our hands more. Uh, yeah, a little bit, but more, but not enough to you know give it revenue growth of eight percent. Put it that way.
0: Okay, right. Should we move back to the banks?
1: Yeah, back to the banks. Okay, and then back to
0: consumer goods. <laughs> <laughs> so end on a high, though. Absolutely. So we are now on to NatWest. Who have also come out with third quarter results. So NatWest reported a three point four percent rise in underlying income over the third quarter to three point five billion. There was a small uptick in net interest income and a larger gain from the fees income. Net interest margin was down quarter on quarter to two point nine four percent, which is lower than markets were expecting. Full year guidance has also been lowered and now is expected to be about three percent down from down from 3.15%. Customer deposits increased 2.4 billion quarter over quarter as a dip in current account levels across the client base was more than offset by a rise in long-term saving balances. Arrears remained broadly stable and in line with pre-pandemic levels. An impairment charge of $229 million was taken into account over the quarter in expectation for future defaults. Operating profit rose 22.7% to $1.3 billion the shares fell 16.4% in early trading. Deposit levels were positive, and that's because NatWest made an active choice to remain competitive in the rates that it's offering. But the longer term and less profitable accounts jumped from 11 to 15% of deposits. The new CEO is currently focusing on costs, and he's continuing to progress on reducing the cost-income ratio which is now at 51.4%, and the medium-term target is sub-50%. Again, like the others, they are suffering on mortgage pricing as profitable business from the pandemic has been replaced by less profitable renewals. In terms of the valuation, business trades at a forward price of book of 0.52, and that compares to a 10-year average of 0.62, and the P-E ratio is 5. The prospective yield is 8.9%, and the 10-year average is 3.8%. Pretty similar to the others, very similar to Lloyd's. They're they're all seeing the same issue where people are switching to the higher, the higher interest savings accounts. I think the reason they they are incredibly cheap, they do have very good dividends. I think part of the reason they're so cheap is because a lot of the evidence from the results they're putting out tends to seems to suggest that they've already peaked for this cycle, and it wasn't a particularly long peak either. That being said, they are incredibly cheap. So Barclays, 4.19 PE. Lloyds, 5.45. NatWest, 5. You can really take your pick. They're all incredibly cheap. All very high dividends. But I just think in the long term, is it a business you'd want to own? I know I am repeating myself, but it is hard not to. (laughs) The results are so similar. But I just think it's an industry that doesn't really have a huge amount going for it with the challenges coming in. The cycle hasn't been particularly long. Yeah, it's just, it's not a business I'd be interested in. I'd maybe be interested in a Monzo and I know I am repeating myself now. So John, anything new to add? Unfortunately
1: not. So moving on to Coke then. So this is Daddy Coke, the big one listed in the US. They had their third quarter results out with revenue growing 11% on an organic basis, reaching $12 billion in the third quarter. Growth was driven by a 9% rise in prices and a 2% increase in volumes. Operating income came in at $3.3 billion in the third quarter, ignoring the effect of exchange rates and other items affecting comparability. There was a 13% increase in underlying operating profit. The associated margin moved 0.81 percentage points higher to 30.3%, primarily driven by strong sales growth and the impact of refranchising bottle operations, which was partially offset by increased marketing spend. Year-to-date cash flow improved by six hundred and thirty-six million dollars to seven point nine billion dollars, and net debt improved from twenty-five point one billion dollars to twenty point eight billion dollars. The company raised its full-year organic revenue growth guidance from a range of between eight and nine percent to ten and eleven percent. That's driven an un- improvement in underlying earnings per share. Guidance, which is now expected to grow between 13 and 14%, ignoring the impact of exchange rates and other items affecting comparability. And the shares were up a couple of percent in pre market trading. In terms of valuation, Coke has a market cap of $242 billion and trades at 19.6 times forward earnings, which is cheaper than its 10-year average of 22.2, and it has a prospective dividend yield of 3.5%. I mean, it's quite useful that we're covering the other two British consumer goods companies this week. I mean, Coke is one of... well, from the biggest and the strongest consumer brands, you can see the quality of the brand and the business in these results, which are significantly better than the other two and even better than Nestle. And I think it's also important to remember that Coke does have a lot of other brands under the umbrella in the soft drinks market. And it's also interesting in the way that Coca-Cola operates And rather, like some of its competitors, than investing itself in big manufacturing plants, it partners with and then holds stakes in local bottling companies. So we've got uh, Coca-Cola HBC is one that we've covered a few times. So that does help maintain its industry-leading gross margins, which are about at the 60% mark. So I think that's something that's unique, as well as having one of the one of the strongest if not the strongest brand in the world so yeah i think these very impressive results and again it's not that expensive for the quality of the business i guess with all of these things it would be look looking to the growth given that you'd think that coca-cola is quite saturated but it can always add to its portfolio and coca-cola the core products continues to sell incredibly well so yeah Fantastic company.
0: Remember what the Pepsi figures were like. I feel like these are a bit better.
1: So for comparison, Pepsi Co, which we covered the other week, grew organically by eight point eight percent to twenty three and a half billion dollars. And in terms of the gr- uh, the volumes, they were flat for the beverage, and food was down one and a half percent. So that tells you what the market thinks about a brand is doesn't it? it does and from a an valuation point of view they are actually very similarly priced so forward price to earnings for PepsiCo is 20 point four so it's a little bit more expensive but very very small and Coke traditionally well, in fact they're broadly similar in terms of what they've traded at over the last 10 years dividends slightly higher with Coke as well.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, that speaks for itself. I think also when you compare it to the Unilever and the wreck particularly the Wreck-It. I mean, Wreck-It, obviously, I, I don't think anyone would try and make the argument that Silla Bang is comparable to Coca-Cola as a brand. But, you know, they increased prices and had a 4.1% drop in volume. Coca-Cola have increased prices 9% and volumes have grown 2%. It's just fantastic. By far the best results, I think, this week, but not had a huge amount of competition. Fantastic, fantastic brand. Don't know if I'd want to pay 20 times earnings for it because I just don't see where the growth comes from. It's already pretty saturated. But that being said, they've grown revenue 11%. So it's obviously coming from somewhere. But most of that's price rises and they won't be able to raise prices 9%. I mean, they can raise prices at or slightly above inflation, but they can't go much beyond that, I don't think. So I would question where the growth comes from because I think everyone knows what Coca-Cola is. I think everyone knows where to get it. I think you know, if there's a business that's hit saturation, it's got to be Coca Cola. I think if I did want exposure to it, which I possibly would because it is a fantastic brand, I would rather pay for one of the the uh, bottling partners like coca-cola hbc which we've covered before or maybe coca-cola femsa which we've also covered once before and that's the latin american coca-cola so i just think with those at least you're getting exposure to markets that will possibly be growth markets rather than saturated markets but you're still getting the benefit of that coca-cola brand
1: i suppose they i wouldn't disagree with you but come with a little bit more volatility there
0: they do yes but that's the price you pay isn't it
1: it, it is it is absolutely
0: of the six businesses we've covered this week barclays unilever lloyd's wreck it ben kaiser nat west and coca-cola which one do you like the most and which one do you like the least i
1: would have to say
0: unilever i like
1: well like the most it would be coca-cola probably but in terms of the valuation and i think the growth ahead in the near term i would go for Unilever like the least between NatWest and Racket, I think?
0: So my most, I think, probably Unilever. I think Coca-Cola's the better business and it's got the better results and it's not a huge amount in the valuation. The reason I would go with Unilever is I don't feel like... I think the current management... And previous management weren't able to do this, but you'd hope current management can do a lot more with some of the brands that Unilever has, in which case it could be a bit of a sleeping giant. And if you got that and it was then, say, re-rated to Nestle PE figures, you could probably do a lot better as an investor than you would with Coca-Cola. I think with Coca-Cola, there's not really much for them to do. It's it's a fantastic business, but I I it's one of those businesses where I think I could quite easily run it. And that's, <laughs> that's not a criticism of the management, but it's like, what do you actually need to do, really? It is a business that probably runs itself. Mm. Whereas with Unilever, I think if you go in there as CEO at the minute, you've got quite a lot of work to do. Yeah. Least favourite, probably Lloyd's or NatWest. I don't think there's a huge amount between them for me. Barclays would just edge it because it's got the investment bank inside, but I wouldn't buy any of the three anyway, So just go in the too hard pile and I don't like the industry. So
1: Okay. Well, on that note, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you again next week.
0: See you next week. Thank you for listening to The Investor Way. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at TiWTweets. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.